We are all most likely familiar with some of the more well-known psalms which describe the prowess and victory of the future king of all the earth. Psalms like Psalm 72 portray a sovereign who rules the world with justice and mercy. Psalm 45 describes him riding prosperously with the people falling beneath his steed. Psalm 24 describes him entering the gates amidst the ringing acclamations of his people, whilst Psalms 95-98 to describe the worldwide honour that will accrue to the King of Kings as he reflects the glory of his father's name. There are, however, two lesser-known psalms which depict a distinct perspective and describe the king in an altogether different phase of his life. They are Psalms 20 and 21. The first of these psalms is a national prayer sung by the congregation as a series of petitions to God to save and defend the king in the day of trouble. It would have been sung perhaps as the king is offering sacrifice in preparation for the battle. Verse 3. The petitioners are loyal servants of the king, seeking God's blessing upon their sovereign. Their victory is bound up in the king's victory. Without his deliverance, there will be no deliverance for them. The first four verses of the psalm contain a succession of supplications, whilst verses 5 to 9 express the rejoicing anticipated by the congregation because of the certainty of salvation they know will emerge from heaven. In anticipation of the victory, the standards of the tribes are unfurled and the army is ready to march under the name of Yahweh, expressing their fullest confidence in his salvation. The answers sought in Psalm 20 are gratefully received and celebrated in Psalm 21. The two psalms are paired as petition and answer because both of them emphasise salvation and victory. Both songs speak of the king. Both highlight his heart's desire and his request. Both identify the right hand of God as accomplishing the king's deliverance. Both celebrate Yahweh's strength and power. And both highlight the preeminence of trusting in God. In Psalm 21, verses 1 to 7, we have an account of the king's royal blessings. And in verses 8 to 12, we have a description of the king's definitive judgment on all his foes. In essence, we have two complementary songs, showing God assisting and the king trusting God saving and the king rejoicing, the king desiring, and God satisfying his desires to the full. The king's conquest is a source of joy, honour and victory, and it has all been achieved by God's goodness and mercy. What interests us, however, is the messianic intent contained within these two psalms and the way our Lord perceived the significance of their contents. When Jesus approached his final hour, the Apostle John informs us that he was troubled in spirit. In John 12, verse 27, he declared, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. In other words, this time of preparation leading up to the battle against sin was a day of trouble, precisely the event that Psalm 20, verse 1 is speaking about. Whilst there was no one to support our Lord during this time, no one who really understood what his work was all about he could take comfort from the scriptures, like Psalm 20, that he could seek strength and help from heaven above. The disciples couldn't enter the fray on his behalf, but he did bring three of them with him to watch over him and guard him from unwelcome intrusions. Sadly, they fell asleep, unable to watch with him. 
One of the key features of Psalm 20 is an appeal that God would send help from heaven, his sanctuary. And this is precisely what his father did. So we read in Luke 22 verse 43, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. God provided the necessary help as a response to the petition found in this psalm. Indeed, the direct intervention of an angel from heaven was evidence that God would save his anointed, as verse 6 has in the Hebrew, Messiah. In verse 4, one of the requests made by the congregation for their king was that God would give him according to the desires of his own heart, by fulfilling his deepest yearnings. What were the Lord's deepest desires? They were expressed in his prayers. He came to undertake the fullness of his father's aspirations, seeking to fulfill his father's will and not his own, as Luke 22 verse 42 in Hebrews 10 verse 7 says. Whilst the congregation in Psalm 20 verse 5 was offering their petitions for the deliverance of their king, no such understanding or prayers were ever offered by the disciples. The nation in David's day was prepared to unfurl their standards, ready to join their king with the joy of salvation. But there in the garden, the only armies that the Lord encountered were those who comprised a great multitude who came with swords and staves to seize him. In human terms, the Lord was completely alone, but he doubtless was resting in the consolation that one day his disciples would understand what was accomplished in his death and, in that day, rejoice in God's salvation. When we turn our attention to Psalm 21, we find a completely different tone concerning the king. We are now being asked to enter into the delight which our Lord felt and experienced when he was granted immortality. When we read this psalm, we are being asked to fellowship his glory, to form part of the audience that has the honour of witnessing the coronation of the king and the granting of the crown of life to the Son of God. Firstly, we notice that the king's conquest over the enemy, in this case sin, has all been achieved by God's goodness, mercy and strength. Nothing was accomplished without the Father, and this was our Lord's consistent message to Israel. I can do nothing of myself, he told them again and again. His begettal was wrought by the Father. His upbringing was under the tutelage of heaven. His miracles were all performed by the power that the Father supplied at his baptism. The trials of rejection, isolation and weakness were only born through strong crying and tears to the Father. The temptations he faced were only rebuffed by the wisdom supplied by God's word. And, finally, his resurrection and ascension were only accomplished by the power and love of the Father, mercifully extended to a beloved Son. All was of God. In all of this, we learn from verse 1 that the king would greatly rejoice. The Hebrew conveys an extreme expression of joy. The joy that was set before him now had become a reality through his resurrection and ascension. In verse 2, we read that God withheld not the request of his lips. And in verse 4, we learn that he asked life of thee, and thou gavest it to him. These requests find a direct fulfilment in the prayer of John 17, where Jesus prayed, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. The Father's answer to that request is outlined in this psalm. In fact, verse 3 describes the drama of Yahweh's response. The AV renders it this way, For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness, thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. The Hebrew word for preventest means to project oneself. That is, proceed, hence to anticipate, hasten, meet. Hence, Rotherham translates the verse, 
for thou wilt come to meet him with blessings of goodness. We have a picture of the father anticipating all the blessings that his son needs and rushing to meet him with a crown of pure gold. What a picture. Every hardship the son endured, every moment of temptation and weakness he experienced, every stroke and beating he received, the father had just the right blessing to give him. Verse 5 tells us that God laid upon him honour and majesty. This was heaven's response to his obedience as he ascended to the throne of God in heaven. If the angels rejoiced at his birth, how much more would they rejoice now that he took up his rightful place at the Father's right hand? As the Apostle Paul put it in Hebrews 2 verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour. This honour and majesty are explained in verse 6, For thou hast made him most blessed forever, thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. We are being asked to imagine the rejoicing of the Father and the Son united in heaven, the Son absolutely overcome with joy in the presence of his Father as he beholds his countenance in immortality. Vindicated by the Father, this psalm went on to promise the newly appointed King absolute justice in relation to those who sought his destruction. The language of verse 9, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger. Yahweh shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them was the language used by John the Baptist to describe the fires of judgment and the wrath to come in AD 70. Those who intended evil against him would be destroyed from the earth, and this the Father had promised him. It is highly probable that Paul had these two psalms in mind when he wrote that we should look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 21, in particular, depicted that real sense of joy that the Son would experience in the Father's presence. We need to have that same real vision of joy before us at all times. We need to rejoice in hope and of the glory of God. We need to make a reality that inheritance of glory we have been promised, that despite the trials and the evils of life, we might be found under praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls.